Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will be exploring subjectivity, the self, and the soul. With me is Danny Caputi. She is a graduate student working on her dissertation, a doctoral candidate in atmospheric science at the University of California. She is also the author of a paper called The Mystery of the Self, published in the Journal of Consciousness, Exploration, and Research. Welcome, Danny. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to be with you. We did a prior interview on mm -hmm. uh, the psychokinetic weather control, but now we'll be looking more philosophically at the question of uh, the self right. it, itself. And let, let's start with the controversy that exists in philosophy. There, There's a whole branch of philosophy where uh, philosophers say the self is an illusion. There is no such entity or thing as the self. Right. Yeah, that's um, a very common picture that we get. Um, and it's probably, I would say, the prevailing view in philosophy is that the self is an illusion. And the idea is that that's kind of validated by even um, if you look to Eastern spiritual practices, as well as um, some instances of altered states of consciousness that people have been in, such as ego dissolution states where they report not feeling like a single unified entity, but rather the bounds of where the self ends and where other begins becomes blurred. And, you know, they experience things such as a decreased sense of self-importance mm -hmm. and an increased sense of unity. So there is a lot of controversy around the term, the whole term self, first of all, and defining it. Yeah. And then figuring out, you know, what does it mean? And then does it exist or is it some kind of illusion? Mm -hmm. So one of the dis distinctions I like to make, though, and I think this is important when we're talking about the philosophy behind the self, is that while it might be related to what I call a subject, it's not the same thing. So we have to be very clear what we're talking about. So the way I think of it is that from our experience of consciousness, you know, the way we experience the world, we have all of this qualia, as we call it, or, yes. you know, uh, experience, mm -hmm. right? So we experience sights, sounds, smells. I would put memories in that, um, emotions, all of our cognition. That's all what I call, or, you know, that's experiential content. In, and a sense of identity. Right. Yeah, well, so the sense of identity might be part of the self, which I'll get to in a minute, but attached to all this experience is someone or something that is experiencing it. Right. Right? So that's what I call a subject. Mm -hmm. I don't call that a self because of the controversy of it. So uh, the whole idea of a self is very controversial, but yet the idea of subjects is, if you look in the philosophical literature, it's really not so controversial that, for example, if you have pain, you need an experiencer of that pain. You need something to be experiencing that pain. So that would be the subject. Mm -hmm. And the subject in that sense is not dependent on what exactly is being experienced 
or memories for that matter or cognition. It's sort of this independent, you know, um, object yeah. you can think of it as. Mm-hmm. Now, I, to jump around a little, I hope you don't mm-hmm. mind. I'm yeah. under the impression that one of the reasons that modern philosophers are uncomfortable with the notion of the self is because it's an echo of the theological notion of the soul, and, mm-hmm. which is really thought of in practically every theological system as as a real entity and in fact one that would survive the death of the physical body and that probably makes a lot of philosophers very nervous to be engaged in in anything that might uh, even uh, echo or resonate with that thought that is a very good point and actually i would argue it's not just the theology of it but it's also cartesian dualism mm-hmm. philosophers nowadays are very very you know, we want to stay very clear of that homunculus idea that there's a, there's a place in the mind where it all comes together, you know, yeah. the so-called Cartesian theater. And so anything resembling that, including the idea of taking subjects as an independent from experience, mm-hmm. taking that idea seriously to some philosophers might feel like, you know, <clears throat> not a good approach because they again they have this fear of cartesian dualism mm-hmm. but i argue as some others have uh that it's not a it's kind of a slippery slope to go from taking subjects seriously as okay there is you know this idea we can construct of a subject that is experiencing the experience mm-hmm. that is different from the experience itself that's not um that doesn't lead you to Cartesian dualism right away. No, for the benefit of some of our viewers, I, I right. want to go back and just define a few terms. Sure. Uh, and yeah. one of them you used is homunculus. That's a word that not everyone will be right. familiar with. Just, um, it's been defined in a bunch of ways, right. <laughs> I think. But um, the way I think of it, that that's... Um, like what Dennett refers to as like the place where it all comes together in the mind. Of like, I think you know. of it as like a little person, like a, right. a little doll-like figure that lives inside of your head. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's that's. Well, a- and in fact, sometimes I've seen it mapped out, like a map of the sensory system on, on your brain, and you see here's where the tongue is, mm-hmm. here's the fingers, here's. It's like almost a little person you can map out. A mental representation that's internal. Yes. In a way. The, right. The sensory impressions as, right. as, as we experience them located in different portions of the brain. It's yeah. almost like a model of our body. Right. And so that's, that's the idea. Some people call it like a ghost or, right. or, or something in, inside of us. It's like there's a, a second person. Right. And so my point in all of this mm-hmm. is that when we're talking about things like, oh, you know, somebody had, or like, you know, there's research now on um, ego dissolution states where there's, you know, people in uh, who are under the influence of psychedelics, for example, uh, report not feeling, you know, or, or a dissolved sense of self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we just have to be really clear in whether we're talking about a self or a subject, mm-hmm. because how you interpret that really matters, because the way I think of it. Sure, you could have an experience that you're, you know, of a dissolved sense of self and mm-hmm. like feeling kind of at one with a bigger um, unified consciousness of some sort. 
but that could still be an experience for you mm-hmm. for You're the still subject having that is you. An experience. Right. And so the way I loosely think of, you know, self versus experience versus subject is, you know, the subject is the thing that is experiencing the experience. It is the perceiver of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the self is sort of like a, maybe can be thought of as like a higher order thought about the subject, mm-hmm. kind of like a thing that links the two. Yeah. So, but a self is dependent on, you know, memories, a, a broader sense of identity, mm-hmm. things like that. So in that sense, you could definitely argue that the self is an illusion, mm-hmm. but we should not use that argument to dismiss questions such as, if I upload my mind into a computer, would that be me? Right? So a lot of people argue that that's a meaningless question because the self is an illusion. Mm-hmm. Right? But I say, no, that's a question about subjects. That's not a question about selves. That's just literally a question of would I continue to exist? Uh-huh. Let me, and, let me backtrack for just yeah, a minute. Sure. <laughs> um, because uh, to my knowledge, the notion that the self is an illusion was articulated very clearly by uh, Susan Blackmore, right. a psychologist in England. Now, she started out her career as a parapsychologist right. and then went over to the other side and identifies herself mm-hmm. more on the skeptical camp, I yeah. would say. Not exclusively, but mm-hmm. more. Uh, she's probably known as a skeptic, and she's yeah. also a practicing Zen Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And she uh, has argued that the self is nothing more than uh, a concept that exists within the contents of uh, our mental process. It's not an entity. Right. And I kind of, my, my take on the way she's um, talked about the self before is that there is some conflation on her part of like between selves and subjects. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame her for that. I mean, they're philosophically, it, it, it People don't make that distinction a whole lot, mm-hmm. which is kind of the problem I'm pointing out, yes. is that the people in everyday language and even philosophers mm-hmm. conflate those two terms and like what we're talking about. I well, think to, to the two big categories of existence are typically subjective and objective. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's it's hard to for people to get rid of the subjective, although work in quantum physics is suggesting right. that the, the distinction between subjective and objective may also be an illusion. Right. But that actually that leads to that leads me to think of kind of a larger point about why it matters to mm-hmm. be talking about subjects. Yes. Because it matters to you objectively. Right? We don't want to make a category error about subject versus object. Like, yes, subjects are by definition subjective, but whether or not I continue to exist after, you know, being uploaded into an alternate substrate, that's yeah. an objective question. That's mm-hmm. an objective. Either I am or I'm not. And so the way I think of it is that, um, as I going with this in it, it in subjectivity, it's basically like it, it it's an objective question of whether we mm-hmm. well you're bringing up the issue of identity right here if you ask am i the same person if my consciousness is somehow transferred to another system no longer right. in this body could be a robot or it could be uh, mm-hmm. uh, another uh, human body mm-hmm. uh is my identity the same 
And right. in, in that sense, it seems to me that the word identity is more related to the word self than it is to subject. It's been interpreted that way yeah. by some people, but I would argue it, it, it's really the subject that matters, mm-hmm. not the self. Because, well, I mean, yeah, maybe the self matters to some degree in that I want my memories to continue. I want, you know, I mostly like my personality. I, you mm-hmm. know, hope some form of me can preserve as myself after I die. But what I care more about is the subject. So Your like for ongoing ex- sense right. of that you're alive. Right. And so here. I think a good way to illustrate that these are distinct things in this context and mm-hmm. why that matters is most people can imagine the concept of reincarnation, yeah. but not remembering who they were in a past life. Mm-hmm. Now to someone who says that all that matters is the self, then they would say, well, then the, if I don't remember who I was, then by definition, I didn't reincarnate because that's not me. Mm-hmm. But I would say, no, if you're the same subject, even if you got rid of all that, those memories, which are part of your experiential content, you know, you're still the same, you know, person in a way. You're still the same subject. That's even very important because most people don't have reincarnation memories. Right. Right. Uh, uh, although I suppose they can be induced through uh, hypnotic regression and other, right. other processes, although they, that might be illusory. But what you're saying is that uh, you don't have to have those memories in order to have the continuity of identity. Right. Or, or, or of subjectivity. That is exactly what I'm saying, yes. Yeah. And another way to think of that, um, Dan Zahavi, um, points this out pretty well in a thought experiment where he considers two twins, um, each with identical characteristics and they're you know the way i think of it is let's say they're in parallel universes Mm -hmm. and they're both identical bodies both conscious both experiencing the same things right he makes the argument that they're two different subjects Mm -hmm. even though their selves are in a sense qualitatively identical you mean in another universe there might be two people who look identical to ourselves having mm -hmm. this very same conversation Right. Perhaps on another planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in no way different. The room would be completely the same. Even the same people would be viewing it. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't be identical to you and me. They wouldn't be numerically identical because they're separate physical systems in a way. And actually, I have yeah. a little way I can demonstrate this. So uh-huh. just to be clear for the audience's sake, right? These pens, these are qualitatively identical. Yes. Uh, but they are numerically different. They are mm-hmm. not numerically identical because these are different pens. Okay. Right? So it's the same idea with um, bodies in a way or like it, physical conscious systems. You could have a numerically uh, or a qualitatively identical physical conscious system that looks, thinks, acts exactly like you, but is a different subject. Okay. Um uh, well, one way of thinking of it is maybe it's, you know, because it's numerically distinct, even though it's qualitatively mm-hmm. identical. Well, yeah, and you bring and, up the the point that they could be exactly the same, uh, but then at some point in time, they might diverge. Right. That Yeah, that is one way I actually talk about that thought experiment. And mm-hmm. another another way to think of it that I think maybe gets the point across a little stronger that mm-hmm. it really does matter that there are separate subjects is because... Let's say we learned right now that, yes, there is, in fact, on another planet, an exact copy of us right mm-hmm. here. 
-hmm. right? We just know that for a fact. And Mm -hmm. they're, you know, exactly like us in every way. And then we learn that in five minutes, one of the two will self-destruct, but only one of the two. Wouldn't we care if we really don't think that there's any difference between our subjects? We shouldn't care. We'll be like, well, if the, if it's us, if it's this that self-destructs, mm-hmm. we'll still be surviving and we wouldn't yeah. know any different. But, you know, I feel like on an intuitive level, that doesn't make sense. We would, I would be very worried. I know <laughs> if I learned that kind of information. Well, in a way, you're bringing up the right. notion of the soul here. Yeah. Because the, the idea of the soul is that it, um, in many traditions, the idea is that it doesn't die. Right. With the death of the body. So there's nothing to be afraid of. One, right. one might say, certainly if you accept the vast database that now exists in reincarnation, there's a possibility that you'd reincarnate. Right. Or if you accept the spiritualist literature, there's a possibility you'll exist in another plane mm-hmm. of reality. So there's no need to fear death. And in the ancient mystery school traditions, people would go through this process and we know very little about it because they were sworn to secrecy, but they, we do know that virtually everyone who came out of that tradition no longer feared death. Yeah. And that's pretty much, that's why I study this is because I want to frame this seemingly impossible question in a way of, of identity in a way that's scientifically tractable. Mm-hmm. So like, kind of like what Dave Chalmers does with the hard problem, you know, takes this seemingly impossible question about, you know, the nature of mind and yeah. subjectivity and frames it in a way that's like, okay, this is the question we have to answer scientifically. So that's what I do with what I call the selection problem, mm-hmm. which is I try to take these questions of identity and collapse it into a form that is, like I said, scientifically tractable. Let's which define is, the selection yes, problem. Yes, sounds good. So <laughs> the way I think of it is, it's kind of a compliment to the hard problem in a way, because the hard problem would ask from the building blocks of the universe, right? Space, time, you know, mass, electrical charge. How do you build a physical system that is conscious, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure, you know, many of our viewers are probably familiar with the idea of philosophical zombies where mm-hmm. you could have something that looks like me, acts like me, but is not conscious, right? right? So, His hard problem is saying, well, how do you make something that, you know, or one way of looking at the hard problem, kind of, you know, my spin on it. But it's it's how do you make something that is conscious? Mm -hmm. And so I take that a step further and say, you know, because recognizing the reality of subjects, right? How do you make it not only conscious, but me that is the one that is conscious or a particular subject of experience? Mm And this is, this is the point I try to make is that, um, subjects of experience are, what, what I'm calling subjects, those are hexeities. It, that's a philosophical term, but what that means is that's like the, think of it as numerical identity. That's like this pen as opposed to that pen. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the thisness of a particular thing, something that makes it a particular thing as opposed to another particular thing. Mm-hmm. And so the thought experiment I like to walk through is that um, in philosophical thought world, you can imagine an infinite amount of conscious organisms being born. And I think what that demonstrates is that there is an infinite amount of 
potential subjects because mm-hmm. they're conceivable. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, now a potential subject is not some spooky thing. This isn't a soul in a way. This is this is just saying that you know, like I am a subject, you are a subject. How many possible subjects could the you know could there be? A center of awareness. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Center, a perceiver of experience mm-hmm. is the way I like to think about that. And there's an infinite amount of possible yeah. perceivers of experience. Yeah. And again, that's just, it's just a construct we're talking it's about. It's very but, important but, construct it, yeah. to me. I can tell you that anyone who finds the first or second edition of my very first book, The Roots of Consciousness, will see mm-hmm. I introduced it by describing what I think of as maybe my very first awakening experience mm-hmm. uh, as a 10-year-old <laughs> child sitting on the roof of our two-story home in mm-hmm. Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and looking out over the the city and asking myself, why am I me? Right. Why am I me? Yeah, that's a, that's a question a lot of us have. And mm-hmm. a way you might take that is, you know, why am I me as opposed to someone else? Like, yeah. why am I here and why are you there? Yeah. Now, that's intuitive to some people, but the problem is when I present that to people as the problem, some people will take that as, oh, well, why can't I just define my body as me? You know, like X equals X, there you go. Like, where is the problem in that? Right. So... Well, that suggests that the the human being is identical with the human body. Right. But but for that reason, because Mm -hmm. you would be able to potentially... Like, you could look at it from that angle, like, oh, it's just a qualitative mapping sort of issue between mm-hmm. but but that's not what I argue at all. Okay. So I say this is like physical conscious systems are hexieties, right? And subjects are hexieties. In other words, they is, have a unique identity. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the and the problem is mapping particular subjects to particular hexieties. Mm-hmm. And the way, the better way to illustrate like why this is actually a problem and why this is the central question around all of our really existential anxiety about what makes us us and how we can preserve consciousness, right, in uploads and stuff is to look at it from this perspective. And so, um, let's imagine that we know that in a, um, Let's just accept for a moment the big crunch hypothesis that the universe is just going to collapse on itself and then I know, eventually another big bang will happen. Okay. A just thought experiment, mm-hmm. right? And let's say I have the ability right now to program the universe in a future iteration of it to some degree. Right now I can say, okay, future universe, I want to produce somehow a physical conscious system that is not only conscious, but that is me, so that I can enjoy another existence mm. after this universe collapses and then re-expands. Mm. And so, how would I do that? You know, now, you might say that, well, can't I just, you know, look at numerical identity of these molecules and somehow track that? But in this thought experiment, you can't do that. You don't have any way of tracking the specific numerical identities of all these particular molecules. So then you might ask, well, how, how on earth am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to program a universe to produce exactly me, that is my consciousness and my subject, without 
you know, reproducing the exact numerical identity of the molecules. Because that's what a lot of people say, oh, that's the answer. Because you could have a copy of you, qualitatively identical, but it would probably be a different subject. So... You're talking about, in effect, the Star Trek uh, transporter. Right, where right. All of the molecules are disassembled and then reassembled at another location. And exactly. out walks uh, Commander Kirk or Captain Captain Kirk or Commander right. Spock or... And, yeah, and basically mm-hmm. from that, you have the question of, is that really you? And both yes and no kind of seem like good answers because on one hand, it's qualitatively identical. It should be you. You're not aware of any changes. But on the other hand, if you didn't destroy the original, how on earth are you going to be at two places at once? So that's why some people say, oh, well, the answer to this question is numerical identity. Mm -hmm. What I argue is there's still a further question because what is it specifically about, you know, so like I said, in that thought experiment I gave earlier of like, you know, you're programming a future iteration of the universe to output a physical conscious system and you want it to be you, of course, because you want to enjoy an existence. And you ask, well, how am I supposed to do that without tracking numerical identity? Yeah. Well, that's the point is there's no obvious reason to believe a particular set of numerical identity of molecules would be you as opposed to someone else. That is a, if it is true that numerical identity is the answer to this question, then, and that's the end of it, mm-hmm. then that illustrates that that's a truly random process. And also the reincarnation because, data, if, if we take it seriously, suggests that the same, I'm going to use the word soul for the mm-hmm. moment, okay. can, can be in two completely different bodies in sequence, first one and then another. The identity is the same, although the molecules are completely different. Right. Yeah, well, in that case, um, you could argue a number of things. I think this this is where it gets hard to tease apart because it could just be the memories that survived. You yeah. really don't know that it, you don't know that it was the same subject. Right. You know, so that could be like that Star Trek case where it's like, you know, the memories are preserved, but maybe it's not the same subject. Well, the, well, the problem we don't. It might exist on several levels. Could it be that at one level of discourse, you get one answer, and at another level, like the mystics who say we're all one anyway, right. at the deepest level of subjectivity, there's there's one being, and we are all sort of little wrinkles of that one being. Yeah, as, and I think I think the problem... You know, that you're highlighting and kind of where I was going with this is that there's just, there's really no physical theory of the subject at this point. There's no, like, we don't have an answer to that, but that's kind of why I'm trying to simplify all Mm -hmm. these big, seemingly impossible questions, as I call them, and collapse it into an easier way of looking at it, which is, you know, the scientific question we really just have to answer is, how is it that once you accept that a conscious system, a physical system is conscious or is producing consciousness, how is it, then you just have to answer the question of how is it selecting, you know, selecting, I put in quotes because I don't think it's a conscious decision, but how is the physical system selecting one particular subject of experience as opposed to the infinite amount of other options it has, Mm -hmm. right? I don't have to be me. I could be just as easily perhaps have been your subject yeah. in my body or anyone else on this earth. Or like I said, 
it's not just limited to that number. It's really infinite, the amount of options it had for, you know, hexietal conscious subjects. And it, could there's be also to. the issue of multiple personality, where you, you it's seemingly yeah. that you have different selves occupying the same body. That's actually one of the things I argue as to how we can maybe start making some progress mm-hmm. on this question. Yeah. You know, I think for for one, this is going to be linked to the hard problem in some way, because mm-hmm. this is a fundamental question about, you know, the phenomenology of consciousness. But then another way we can we can do things is look at these disorders of consciousness where it seems like you have multiple selves, mm. right? And again, and it may I want to be just disorders because there's a lot of uh, theoretical work suggesting that normal people have at least two identities, a conscious personality and a mm-hmm. subconscious personality. Right. Well, yeah. So again, but these are, these are, um, identities that are selves. Mm-hmm. So this is where I think we need to be really clear about that distinction between self and subject. Yes. And that's really what you're highlighting. That's really what I'm highlighting is yeah. that going forward in these kinds of studies, studying multiple personality disorder, for example, I don't have that. I don't have any experience of that. So I don't really know if they're experiencing multiple selves or multiple subjects. I would speculate it's probably multiple selves with multiple personalities, but it's still perhaps one unified subject. But I don't think we have any way of knowing that unless we're willing to really bring in philosophers into the way we design experiments around these things. Yeah. Well, you know, I did have an earlier conversation with Stephen Browdy, a philosopher, mm-hmm. on on this very issue, and he brought up Immanuel Kant's notion of the transcendental self. Right. So he he's suggesting that, uh, you know, there are selves that we have conscious access to and, and a transcendental mm-hmm. self that may be really in charge of things at some yeah. level, but we, we may not even have conscious access to that part of our being. And, you know, I think that is a beautiful theory. And I think mm-hmm. that is, like, honestly, like, um, that might be a solution, so to speak, to the selection problem. I think we'll have mm-hmm. to make, you know, we'll have to probably come up with some more evidence of that over, you know, in our whole journey of, you know, this field of consciousness studies. Mm-hmm. But um, ultimately, I'm not at all unsympathetic to that idea that we could be, you know, part of a larger conscious system. Mm-hmm. I've sort of taken that out of my papers because I'm trying to argue a pretty mainstream idea here, like kind of like the hard problem. I think this is like a way of just... You know, something that anyone in a way could accept, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not you accept reincarnation, mm-hmm. souls, dualism, psi phenomena, all of that. So I kind of draw a hard line there again mm-hmm. between like what we talked about in the last interview, like the speculation stuff and what I, you know, the, mo- the philosophical model of the questions we know we need to answer. But I do definitely think that putting this into a larger you, you know, yeah, we might, we might, it might turn out that we would discover that, you know, what you were just saying about what Stephen mm-hmm. Browdy is talking about with, and many others, yeah. you know, the East, Eastern. Well, let me Eastern. bounce something off of you because in our earlier conversation on psychokinetic weather control, you, mm-hmm. you talked about turbulent systems right. in the atmosphere and how there's a certain uh, debate going on in your field of atmospheric science of whether uh, 
a small eddy can create a large-scale turbulence or whether the large-scale turbulences are creating the small-scale right. eddies. Well, we know the larger turbulence is creating small-scale eddies, yeah. but I, you know, I argue, some others argue it might go the other way too. Mm-hmm. But, well, but maybe human identity in, works in a similar way, mm-hmm. that there are different levels. And at one level, the mystics are correct. There's one consciousness we all mm-hmm. partake of it. We're all like little wrinkles in, right. in a much larger system or drops in the ocean, as some people might say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, whatever happens at, at the large scale kind of works its way down. And, right. You know, how we are all, our, our individual identities are conditioned by things way, way outside of our normal conscious awareness. Right. But then... It may also work, as you suggested, the other way around, that individuals can, under certain mm-hmm. special circumstances that are not yet well understood, influence the larger picture. So we need to really be able to think about uh, some activity that's taking place simultaneously at different scales. That's a beautiful way to put it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't have any issue with any of that. Um, I think that you know, I argue this kind of in a cross-disciplinary sense. I think that in science in general, people tend to look at their own field and, you know, their own specific part of this picture and not tend to think about how it connects to the bigger mm-hmm. part and how, you know, that's influencing the bigger picture and how the bigger picture is influencing it. You know, that's kind of just one of the systematic biases, I think, in, you know... I don't know about, I don't want to say science in general, but it's just the way mm-hmm. some people think, you know what I mean? Is, is that, you know, what is, what is the, what are the tiny scales going to have to do with the really large scales? Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. One of the ways I actually screened, cause when I was coming into grad school and I wanted to work with, um, an advisor who I, you know, who had a, in my view, a, a good philosophy of science where they were willing to kind of think this way. Mm-hmm. And the screening question I asked was, what do you think of the possibility that quantum effects might explain some of the uh, currently unsolved cloud physics? Well, you get two responses. You get some people saying like, wow, that's a brilliant idea. I never thought of that. Or, you know, or yeah, who knows? Maybe it could be. I don't know. And then you get the other people saying, no, there's just no way. The scales are way too different. Mm. So, and that it that's almost, believe it or not, you know, you can almost ask these kind of, questions, the single questions that will tell you just kind of how people think. Well, Danny, I have had an interdisciplinary approach to knowledge, uh, at least since I (laughs) entered the field of parapsychology. But it strikes me as very exciting to see a young person such as Mm -hmm. yourself in a field like atmospheric science, which is one of the... uh, for in in the forefront of looking mm-hmm. at chaotic systems yeah. and and also questioning how does that apply to issues such as uh, the philosophy of mind yeah and i guess i guess i'll leave it on the note that um you know i really want to emphasize that it would be great to see you know more you know people that are getting interested in psi research mm-hmm. and even just not just psi but just any discipline in science mm-hmm. you know to integrate the philosophy into their practice and like experimental design i think it's 
I think that's really one of the keys in like solving complex problems is that we're really we're gonna have to stop shying away from the philosophy as scientists. You know what I mean?、Mm-hmm. And just say like, oh, that's a that's a philosopher's way of approaching it. I'm a scientist. I work with objective data. You know, I think it's just going to be really important, especially in today's climate and everything. And just going forward, we're solving some really challenging problems that are like challenging all of humanity. We're just we're gonna have to grapple with the philosophy in in our scientific practice. There's just no way around、uh, it. A great note to end on, Danny <laughs> Caputi. Thank you so much for sharing your、uh, passion for these fields with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for being with us. 